just never know how long to wait. Everybody good? We can start. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Patrick. Uh, it is a blessing to be here. Um, I, uh, to upload these slides, uh, we use a thing called Proclaim, and so I logged onto my computer, um, and it showed me the last time I had logged into Proclaim was the 24th of March, which would have been the last time I spoke up here, which it was kind of cool to see because when I looked at the slides, we were um, putting out a big ask for a pledge, and I think it said, make Stanley happen. <laughs> And it's so cool to see how God has, has moved in uh, the months to follow, and uh, really uh, what we're going to be talking about today is investing in eternity, and I think what we're doing at Hope City is investing in eternity, so thank you. Um, it's, it's fun to be along um, for the ride. I was, uh, I was sitting down for dinner um, just a couple nights ago, and uh, it's really nice when a, a an illustration just drops into your lap. So I sat down, and uh, for those who don't know me, I work for Residence Life for the University of Edinburgh, and uh, one of the residence assistants uh, sat down across from me. And uh, I also uh, am working on a PhD at the University of Edinburgh in in the Divinity School studying theology. And uh, she looks at me, she goes, Pat, can I ask you a question? I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And then she asked me a question that is, is... It can cause a bit of existential crisis in any PhD student. She goes, Pat, how does studying divinity contribute to society? <laughs> it had a bit of that, that bite behind it, like a bit, of, a bit of disbelief, like how could this actually benefit society? Of course, behind that question was a particular system of evaluating what is of value, Right? Well, how do you decide, and of course, as a philosopher that I am, I ask, well, what do you mean by contribute? What do you mean by society? What do you mean by divinity? (laughs) What do you mean by study? Yeah, I actually did ask those things. In such moments, it can be really easy to get defensive, to try to jump to justifying what you're already doing. Part of the reason I'm studying theology is because I enjoy studying theology, But is it simply because I enjoy it? Is that justification enough? It's kind of hard to fault the question. I mean, how would you answer a similar question? In one sense, it's a a very good question. And those more familiar with my academic journey may realize it's questions just like that that I'm asking myself that caused me to change my topic six times in the past two years. It's a question that doesn't only plague academics, it it plagues nearly everyone at some point in their life. You don't have to wait for the the midlife crisis either. You can ask the question while you're in the middle of a daily grind um, of your your job, or or maybe the young people here will ask it when they're sitting in geometry. I mean, am I right? Like, who needs geometry? I mean, what, what does a cosign ever do for you unless it's your parents, you know, signing a loan for your car? Sorry, was that joke a bit obtuse? (laughs) I thought it was a cute joke. (laughs) Sorry, I'm going on a bit of a tangent. (laughs) See, geometry does have value. Standing up here, bad puns all day long. So moving on, why does 
it matter? I mean, you could, you could fill in the blank and ask yourself this question. Why does blank matter in the end? And how you begin to try to answer that question is going to tell you a lot about what you, what you value. I mean, you jump to uh, the, amount of, the, amount of, the amount it contributes to the economy, then that's telling you deep down that it's somehow, somehow money that matters, right? Now, maybe it's because you, money is a means to, to people having better lives. So is it, is it comfort that matters? Is it, is it having nice things? Is it having luxuries that matter? If you're trying to justify the arts, maybe you, you think it contributes to the good life, you know, to well-being, to, to enjoyment. However you try to answer that question, it's going to come down to what do you truly value? We need to ask the question, where does the rubber hit the road? I mean, how does studying divinity contribute to society? That's a question I need to wrestle with. So today, let's, let's ask these questions. Let, let, let's let them sink in. You know what? If need be, let's have little mini existential crises. It's okay. It's a safe space. The legacy we leave matters. How we live matters. I was involved in a, uh, a college ministry for many years, and uh, uh, the man who had run the ministry for 20 years was moving on to a different ministry. And in his last message, he gave us a card that looked just like this, and I still keep it in my wallet today. It says, make yours count, and there's a little dash. And what those blanks on either side are, it's from your birth to whenever you die. He said, make what's in between count. But if we're going to make what's in between count, we need to know how to judge what the good life is. How do we even go about it? How can we tell? How do you determine the value of a life lived? And with that question in mind, I would like to turn to Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 15. I'm actually going to have Lystra come on up. She's going to read this, but you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 16, 1 to 15. I failed to say the page number. Do we have it here? Uh, 1049. So you can turn there. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 liters of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world who are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are most people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Thank you. It's a rather interesting passage. Uh, It's certainly one that uh, Christians have wrestled with over the centuries. Um, Quick recap, you have a a man who's mismanaging his boss's resource. He's a steward, a bailiff. He's put in charge of likely collecting the rent that's due. This this rich man's likely a landowner, which is why you see crops owed. And so he's supposed to collect a percentage of them, and perhaps he's marking them up, as was uh, the custom many times in the day, to make a profit for himself. Whatever the means, his master is, is displeased with him, and so he's getting his P45, or for the Americans, the pink slip. He's getting fired. He has to think quickly on his feet, and his, his focus quickly shifts to, well, what's, what's next for me? And for clearly selfish reasons, he, he doesn't want to go and have to do manual labor. He's above manual labor. He's, he's white-collar, not blue-collar. Do you guys use those terms? I always get nervous when I use American terms. Don't know if they translate. His focus shifts to what's next. And so what does he do? Well, he's a pretty clever guy. He, he uses his position to give a bunch of discounts to those who owe his master. So we see that he goes to the first, and I'm sorry, I have the gallons um, measurement. I forget what the liters was. I think it was 3,000, but... Mine is a 900 gallons of olive oil, and he cuts it in half, slices it in half, says 450, we're good. The next one, 1,000 bushels of wheat. I'll knock off 20%. 800, you're good. So what is he doing? He's, he's buying good favor from his friends. Now, what, what's, what's really odd about this is, is for the first time hearing this, you've probably heard this before, but the first time hearing this, what would you expect Jesus to do? I mean, my, my tendency would well, critique the guy. This is rather dishonest, right? I mean, it's not clear whether or not he's just simply giving up his own profits or not, but I mean, a 50% discount, surely he's got to be ripping off his master. But what does Jesus do? In the story, in the parable, he says that the master praises the shrewd, the clever, perhaps the dishonest manager. Why? Because he was thinking ahead. So what's the moral of the story? Cheat your way to get ahead? You heard it here first. Jesus says, cheat your way to get ahead. We we like to do uh, pigeonhole now. You can field those questions. Obviously, that should seem wrong to us. 
And I want to challenge you guys. Sometimes when we encounter texts like this that don't make sense, we can perhaps far too quickly just explain them away, right? Oh, we know what Jesus really, really meant. And perhaps, you know, I'll risk doing that today. Because I certainly don't think Jesus is saying, hey, be dishonest. And so push back if you think we're simply trying to explain things away too quickly. What is Jesus actually getting at here? I'll make an attempt. You can certainly submit the questions in the pigeonhole. But I think the context around this, as well as the other parables he tells through the Gospel of Luke, as well as the other Gospels, gives more context on what it means to manage resources well. And he seems to to be pinpointing this notion of, of cleverness, of thinking ahead, of making that shift when you, when, you, when, you try to, when you try to evaluate how valuable your decisions are, don't simply think of the here and the now, but think of what's next, what's, what's to come. What's going to happen after you get your P45, after you get your pink slip? Perhaps uh, a key for this passage is, is the ending right here. It says, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So there's two things I would like to do today. First, I would say we need to make sure we've shifted, if you haven't already, shifted our perspective in how we evaluate what we own, the resources we have, and I'm talking about time, talents, as well as money, capital, And then we need to make sure we're being clever, being wise, coming up with a strategy for how we use it. So as we talk to these, I would like to say, first, we need to be sensible. Now, that might seem like a very odd choice of words. Be sensible, right? Because typically when you hear about be sensible, you know, it might be a speech you're getting from your, your father or mother for the first time when you're thinking about uh, what you need to go to, what to major in, what, what job to take. I could put Catherine on the spot and ask if she got a be sensible talk or not, but I won't do it. <laughs> Oftentimes it's like, well, well, what are you going to do with this? Are you going to make money? These are good questions, right? Are you going to support yourself? Are you going to care for a family if you want a family someday? But the shift we need to make is what kind of sensible we're being. And so we can speak of two different kinds of sensibility. We can speak of a worldly sensibility. I'm going to define this as a way in which, which sensible decisions, treating that this life is all that there is. This life is all that there is. Perhaps some worldly sensibilities is saying, you know what? It's just me. Look out for number one. Or look out for my family. We could define worldly sensibility in different ways. But what's key for world, worldly sensibility as opposed to eternal sensibility is what's missing, the God's eye view, what God actually thinks of this situation. When I say eternal, I know it can mean many different things. I want you to think of more of simply, more than simply what's next or what's to come. That's part of eternity, what happens after we die. These are serious considerations we need to do, but it's ultimately, when I, when I think of eternity, when I think of that which is eternal, it's that which is ultimately meaningful. That which, simply, that which transcends the here and the now and has a forever value. Forever value. So perhaps we can think of the eternal as the forever value. Why is that important? Because if we simply think of it as what's to come next, sometimes we forget about what's important now, right? 
And you can make decisions that have forever value now, like caring for those in need, right? I mean, our, our, our commission as, as Christians, as follower of Je- uh, followers of Jesus, isn't simply to, to tell people how they can get to heaven someday, but it's also to care for them in the here and the now, because that has forever value. So the eternal is that which has forever value. So to be sensible is to act in ways that make sense when you consider from a God's eye view what has forever value. So I want to quickly go through four principles for considering what has forever value. Three negative, one one positive. The first is that stuff is temporary. I know that's not very profound. It's rather, rather common sense. Stuff is temporary. We see right in verse 1, it says that the the, the manager was, was wasting the possessions. And so then we see in verse 2, it says, you cannot be my manager any longer. As we mentioned, he gets his, his P45. He gets, he gets fired, or at least notice that he's getting fired. Sometimes it takes a significant event in our lives to make that shift. To make that shift from the here and the now, being blinded by busyness, being blinded, what, what needs to be done today? What needs to be done tomorrow? What needs to be done this week? And something significant needs to happen for us to think about what actually has forever value. I was reading just this morning, um, an evangelist by the name of Nick Hall uh, tweeted just yesterday. He said, my sister is dying of cancer. Two weeks ago, I was worried about my career. And now nothing else matters but my faith and family. Lord, help us count our days. Help us make our days count. I'll try not to get too emotional up here, um, but I also want to be transparent and vulnerable with you. And I wrestled with whether or not to share this from up here because I'm not seeking pity. I found out three months ago that my dad is dying. That radically shifted my perspective. But I want to say what's so important about digging into Scripture and grounding yourself in these principles to think through what has forever value because people respond to tragedy in different ways. And simply because you encounter a tragedy does not mean you're going to have an eternal focus. I mean, my first feelings were numbness and then feeling like I'm losing an anchor in the world. It's uncomfortable. But sometimes we need something radical to happen to lose an anchor in the world, to realize that we can ultimately be anchored not in this world, but the world to come. Stuff is temporary. But how do we internalize that? How do we internalize it? In today's society, I think we have a problem. I mean, it's sometimes a good problem, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want it the other way. But in our average life, we often are far from death. We often live in comfort, luxuries, distracted from the reality of our own mortality. This here is an ornate memento mori from the Middle Ages. It was carried around by the wealthy. I mean, I'm sure some just considered it as a status symbol, but the meaning behind it 
was to be a constant reminder that you carried around, reminding of yourself, though on one side, you might look like you have it together. We're all mortal. No matter how rich you are, no matter how many resources you have, stuff is temporary. What kind of memento mori can you place in your life? We don't need to wait for these, these cataclysmic things to happen in our lives so that then we can reevaluate what has forever value. What can you do? Sometimes I worry in the modern church we've lost a rhythm of lament, of internalizing the suffering around us in a ritual way, practicing the mourning that we are in a broken world. And when we lose lament, it's easy to forget what has forever value. What kind of rhythms of reflection can you place in your lives? When you pray, how much of your prayers focus on those suffering around you? How many of your prayers are prayers of lament, of mourning, of crying out like David in the Psalms of why is this world so broken? Perhaps you can have these discussions in small groups. Perhaps you can, you can direct your attention to the scriptures and those that deal with lament, like the Psalms of David. In what ways can we actually draw close to the reality of our mortality rather than attempting to wall ourselves off from it. Stuff is temporary. To realize that stuff is not mine. I'm not going to spend much time on this point. I know Matt gave a talk a couple months ago um, on the parable of the rich man who had this huge crop, and he says, you know, I'm just going to fill more barns with stuff, right? Thinking this stuff is mine, this stuff's going to give me security. But ultimately, one, it's a gift from God, and so it should be received with graciousness, and graciousness should produce generosity. But ultimately, it's going to go away. It's temporary. It's ultimately not ours. Stuff is also supposed to be used. Now, when I say this, I don't mean it's just simply supposed to be consumed. I mean it's supposed to be put to a purpose. Put to a purpose. And this is what we actually see this manager do. I'm sure we saw saw the manager, it wasn't his stuff. It was his boss's. But he also puts it to use, right? Now, he does it in a rather dishonest way, it seems to be, to gain favor. He did it for selfish reasons. Now, should we be driven by selfish reasons? No, we should be be driven by, by thankfulness. Our gratitude should come from a realization of the graciousness of God. So I want us to to realize this. What we hoard is Lord. What we hoard is Lord. We see later in this text that no one can serve two masters, we pick up in verse 13. You cannot serve both God and money. What we hoard is Lord. Now you might say, Pat, what about savings? Isn't it responsible to save? Yes. So what's the difference between saving and hoarding? Savings serve a purpose. Um, there's a, uh, 
a financial uh, advisor in the, uh, the U.S. by the name of Dave Ramsey, and um, regardless of your feelings, uh, if you know Dave Ramsey or not, um, I find his, his idea of a zero-balance budget rather intriguing. I'm sure this is a concept that obviously is, is out there besides him, but it's the idea that when you make a budget, you assign every dollar a place where it's going, whether it's to savings, whether it's to this, that, so you don't let any money fall through the cracks. So if we're thinking of re- our resources including time, talents, and money, what does it mean to have a spiritual budget that assigns our resources to something specific? And so what's the difference between hoarding and saving? Well, saving has a particular purpose related to, to security. For the sake of security, no. But for the sake of being able to sustain a healthy life so we can continue to do ministry for God. So we continue to, to serve and to act and to, to, to work toward um, those things of eternal value. So see, that's the difference between saving and hoarding. Hoarding is the idea, as, as Matt said in the, the talk a couple months ago, is just, I just need a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. You're, you're, you're watching your bank account go up simply because it makes you feel better. Now, I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you the line between how much is too much when it comes to your savings. That's something you need to wrestle with when you, when you, when you engage with these texts, when you think about what What's of eternal value? What do I actually need? What needs could I be meeting instead? Where does generosity come in? And ultimately, I want to say this. I had three negatives. I want a positive. And we see this this in the text as well. It's it's in particular when when the master is commending the dishonest manager. It says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What's the focus on? What matters? These relationships we build. People are what is of eternal value. People are what is of forever value. So the question is, how are you investing in people? How are you investing in people? This is the bottom line for this talk. If we're going to be sensible, we, in an eternal sense, we need to be leveraging our time, talents, and resources to win friends for eternity. We need to leverage our time, talents, and resources to win friends for eternity. Does that mean we're trying to buy them off like, like they're just some kind of means to an end? No. We do it because we love them, because we're driven by the core of the law, which is to love God and to love others. The fact that it's the sensible thing to do does not make it the wrong thing to do. It's what's good for you. Jesus lays that out. This is what he's praising. He says, even this dishonest guy is looking out for himself. Guess what? And this is the incredible thing about the Christian story is what's ultimately right, is also what is good for you. That's beautiful. It's not a problem. We can be driven by love, and ultimately, when we love God and we love others, because God is a good God, it is ultimately good for us as well. So what does it mean to leverage your time, talents, resources for eternity? As usual, I went way over. And so I'm just going to show you these things and not hold you up any longer. We're going to skip 
to right here. Um, when we're wrestling with this text, I want to encourage us, we can learn from people that are non-believers, from non-Christians. Learn from them. I know many churches that benefit from business ideas. But translate them. Don't adopt a worldly system that doesn't consider what has forever value. Translate it primarily through the law of love. And what does it mean to love people well? Take an inventory. What are your resources? What, what time do you have? What talents do you have? How much money do you have? Perhaps you can go home or in small groups tonight, make a list of all your resources and then sit down, brainstorm with each other, get clever, get creative. I mean, what can we do this Christmas? What can we do this week? What can we do this month to do something crazy, outlandish to win friends for eternity? I know many of you in this church do that. I mean, it might not be crazy, but inviting me over for lunch is really a cool way to invest. (laughs) Finally, get investing. Get investing. It's one thing to just stand up here and talk. Just get going. Get investing. Don't don't be afraid to take risks. You see, the the dishonest manager, he had no guarantee that it was going to pay off in the end. But why did he act? Because there was an urgency he had to. Time was short. He needed friends for after he was fired. We need friends for eternity. So let's get investing. Let's act now. Let's make it it count. So we're going to turn to these questions. I'm going to pray, um, and then we'll turn to a couple um, uh, discussion questions. Dear Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the opportunity to, um, to study your word, to wrestle with text, Lord. I couldn't do justice to this text today, Lord. But, but may we focus on what it means to shift our, our perspective to what has forever value. Lord, may we be audacious and clever in the way in which we try to win friends for eternity, Lord. May we do it all through love. I praise your name. Amen. You guys.